this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. For those of you visiting with us uh, this morning, we are uh, taking a short series of messages from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2, for some obvious reasons in that regard. But we're taking time with it because I have a deep concern for history. I think as crucial as it is for us as God's people to understand the history of this world and the Genesis account of creation that God gives to us, it would seem then that as God enters into this world as a child, as Jesus of Nazareth, that we ought to be as historically accurate about that event as possible. Because God has said it in a historical narrative. Just as much as God has set Genesis chapter 1 as a historical narrative, literal history, so too is Luke chapter 1, the story of the coming of his son into this world. And rather than to have our theology and our doctrine dictated to us by Hallmark cards or TV specials or just bad theology or I would say perhaps even worse, bad Bible reading, that we just listen to others rather than to examine the truth that God has given to us. We're coming back this year to this narrative account that the gospel writer Luke gives to us. Last Lord's Day, we considered verses 1 through 4, which is much more than an introduction to the book. It gives us the reason and cause. In fact, what was interesting is that Luke is using the historical narrative to work with a seeker, Theophilus, somebody who is questioning and, and is investigating the claims of Christianity. Luke starts by tutoring this man, not at the cross. He starts at the birth. He starts at the birth. In our society, we, we so rush to get to the cross. But until we understand the birth, it's like until we understand Genesis, the rest of Scripture doesn't make sense. Until we understand the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, biblically, historically, doctrinally, we're not going to come out at the right place. Luke chapter 1, we pick the story up at verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
Now, while they, he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Pardon heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you will guide Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word, that it may come readily to his lips, which we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. If you're following the sermon outline this morning, we'll try to make through all three points. Uh, the first being the setting of this particular passage that we are now uh, looking at from Luke chapter 1. Secondly, the reveal. This is the great reveal that is taking place. Secondly, the reactions that we find from the various parties that are involved in our passage this morning. First of all, the setting. We want to look first of all at the people who are involved. And this section of the story of the coming of Jesus, focus on two individuals. There is a man by the name of Zechariah, whose name means Jehovah has remembered. There are about 30 other so-named Zacharias in the Bible. Some have a little bit longer sections. Some have are mentioned but briefly. So it was a very common name. The Lord has remembered, Jehovah has remembered, Yahweh has remembered. It was a reminder, that name, to, to the people of Israel of God's covenant promises. That the Lord will remember the promises that he has made. 
See, and that's what gives us the setting now, isn't it? The Lord is remembering the promises that he has made. Not in the sense that God forgot, not in the sense that he couldn't remember where, where that he had made this, but in the sense of he is now calling it into action. He knows he has promised to send forth a Messiah. He knows he has promised to send forth the deliverer. He has, got, has made sure of the promise to Isaiah that the Emmanuel shall indeed come. He remembers that promise. The people of Israel, throughout their history, periodically, this name reemerges. Ah, the Lord has remembered. The Lord has remembered his covenant promises to us as his people. This particular Zechariah is a priest. He is a priest. We are given some of his lineage here, that he is of the divi division of Abijah. He is uh, uh, on duty at this particular time. We'll come back to that in a minute. There is also his wife. She's also a person that gives us the setting here. Her name is Elizabeth. God is the absolute reliable one. Names are important in Luke 1 and 2. Elizabeth, God the absolute reliable one, and Zechariah, God has remembered. Our husband and wife. She, however, is barren. She's unable to conceive, unable to have children. And this couple is advanced in years. That's a relative term, is it not? Right? Because you could ask your children and say, so what does advanced in years mean? You could be 25 and your child might say, you are, you're old, right? No, when they get to be 10, maybe when you're 40, you're old, right? It's not a good day when your children look at you and say, you're advanced in years, dad, right? So what does that mean? Well, it's a relative term, but it would seem to imply the fact that they're probably older than childbearing years. So maybe advanced in years without trying to insult anybody here, might be 60s, 70s, maybe 80s in that time frame. But what else we learn about this couple is interesting, isn't it? Verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We read that periodically of various characters in Scripture. Job comes to mind as one that we read almost the identical words. What, what does that mean? Does that mean they aren't sinners? No. It does not mean they are not sinners. What it means is they lived life in such a way that no one could really charge them with any offense. There was no public offense that you could charge Zechariah with. There was no public offense by which Elizabeth could be charged. In that sense, they were blameless before the Lord. The, the, the Pharisees couldn't haul them in. The Sadducees couldn't haul them in and say, hey, we know you broke the law at this point, at this point. As far as the public was concerned, they appeared to follow meticulously all the laws, all the customs, all the ordinances of God. Are they sinners? Of course they're sinners. The story reveals it, does it not? in Zechariah's doubt. But the sin of Zechariah and Elizabeth is not in the sense of a public sin, 
It's the understanding they are sinners, and they know in their own hearts they are sinners. That's why they're faithful in keeping the sacrifices and everything else they must do. So those are our two individuals. But the time is given to us as well. Notice how Luke wants to make sure we get the setting right. We are in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is Herod the first, or Herod the great. He's the same character we'll meet uh, in Matthew chapter 2, who's going to come and slaughter the infants at Bethlehem. He has about a 33-year reign. Most of that is prior to this. From this point on, he's going to reign only about four more years, maybe five or six, somewhere in that time frame. He's the great builder. He's the great architect. He's the, the king who has given the Jews that fabulous temple that we looked at a few weeks ago from the Gospel of Mark. But he's also ruthless. It's in his days. It's in the days of a king that you would least likely expect that God moves and God acts and God remembers his promise to send forth the Messiah. But we're also told a little more specifically. We are told that we are now in the division of Abijah. David had set up the priesthood to follow 24 divisions. Uh, each division served one week, two times a year. So this is one of the one-week time periods that Zechariah's division of the priesthood of Abijah would be there in Jerusalem officiating the various functions of the priesthood during that week. You say, well, wait a minute, 24 times 2, that's only 48. We have 52 weeks, not the Jewish calendar. Jewish calendar operates on the moon cycle, and therefore there are only uh, 12 months of four weeks, giving them that number. So it worked out according to their calendar. We are told that this announcement, this great revelation, is taking place while Zechariah, who is part of this division, has been chosen to offer the sacrifice of the day. The sacrifice they're talking about is an incense offering. It was off operated in the morning, offered, excuse me, in the morning and in the evening, about 3 o'clock. So about 9 a.m. they offered this incense, incense, and about 3 p.m. they offered the incense. Which of the two? It would appear it's probably the latter. That incense, as we learn from the passage, because the people are outside doing what? They're praying. So this incense was a reminder of the continual prayers of God's people being offered up. And as this incense would burn, the smoke would go up, and that smoke was a picture, an illustration of the prayers of God's people ascending. It's as Zechariah brings in this incense to put it upon the altar. This altar is located right next to the veil, to the Holy of Holies. This is the closest, this is the closest 
that Zechariah will ever get. Because he's not the high priest. He can't enter the Holy of Holies. This is his big moment. This is his big day. And there he is, taking the opportunity to pray. We know that because the angel tells us that. Your prayers have been offered. Zechariah, as the priest who brings this incense, is also praying. Those prayers have been offered. That's what's the work that is exactly taking place. Luke wants us to know exactly when this happened. When what happened? When the big reveal took place. See, we, we, if I had preached this sermon 10 years ago, and I used the expression, the big reveal, you would have gone, what are you talking about? But today, right? Today, that's what this is all about, right? Couples go through big expense to reveal the sex of their child. They have big parties now, okay, as to whether or not it's a boy or a girl. They do elaborate things. Airplanes are called in. Parachuters are called in. Balloons are called in in order to announce the birth of the child. Kind of pale in comparison to an angel. Because that's what God uses. God uses an angel to announce the birth of this child. The angel's name is Gabriel, as we learn later on in the passage, which means mighty is God. How appropriate, because we're going to have a barren woman conceive and give birth. It's going to take a miracle. Not the same miracle that we'll have with Mary, but it's still going to be miraculous. God is going to overturn the course of nature and do something outside of the natural course of events in order that Elizabeth is going to be able to conceive and bear a child. Mighty is God. I come with that announcement. But there's something else. When Gabriel identifies himself, as you look at the text, do you notice where he says he has come from? He says, it's down in verse 20. Or 19, excuse me. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Can you imagine what this being must have appeared like? Let me take you back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have an event with Moses up on Mount Sinai in which he is allowed to see God pass by the rock. And he's not allowed to see fully the face of God. But he is allowed to see the back of God. However, that we, we have to understand that. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face, from that mere, momentary, brief occurrence, is glowing with the glory of God so brightly that the people are like saying, you got to put a veil on, Moses. We can't even look at you because the glory of God 
is so bright in your faith. And he only saw it for a moment. And he only saw, as it were, as Scripture defines it, the back of God. Here is Gabriel, who comes from standing in the presence of God. For thousands of years, he's been in the presence of the glory of God. Can you imagine what his appearance must have been like? This messenger who has been sent by God. See, it's not, it's not Gabriel. You know, I think I'll go down and talk to that Zechariah guy. No, it's God. It's the Lord. Everybody's name centers here, doesn't it? On the Lord. It is the Lord who sends Gabriel. Go down to that man. Go down to that man, that priest. That old man who's standing by that altar, that altar of incense, and tell him his prayers have been answered. His wife, his barren wife, is going to have a child. Direct from the presence of God comes this big reveal. Zechariah, you and your wife are going to have a child. But that action is not the big reveal. It's what the angel tells him about the son. Let's go back and look at that. Three things are told Zechariah. Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here is the greater reveal. You're going to have a son, but listen, Zechariah, to what your son is going to have the privilege of doing. Three things. One, he's going to be given a name. You call him John. God, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is gracious. Here's where it is, isn't it? God is gracious. This whole celebration of the coming of Christ reveals to us again the graciousness of God. How gracious it was for him to come to Adam and Eve in that garden. After they had sinned, after they were hiding, after they wanted nothing to do with God. And he comes and he says, I will send forth a Savior. When his people over and over and over again trespass and turn their backs upon him, God continually through the prophets, and we'll 
begin the study of one tonight, Hosea, comes back to them and says, but I am gracious and I will send you a deliverer. Here we are in the days of Herod with Zechariah as the division of Abijah standing by that incense altar. As the prayers have gone up, the angel comes and announces, God is gracious. That's what you need to name your child. The Lord, your covenant God, is gracious. And he will have a calling. His calling is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even, we are told, in his mother's womb. Sometimes I'm asked the question, Pastor Bob, is, is it possible that a, that a child just conceived can be born again? Yes. You say, how do I know that? John, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you see, we never get a little of the Holy Spirit. We never get a dab of the Holy Spirit. God always pours out his Spirit. That's what we, we believe by that effectual calling of God, that God sends forth his Spirit, the fullness of his Spirit. So when that fullness of that Spirit comes upon us, we cannot but come and answer that call. When God issues forth that outward call of the gospel to all men, gospel proclamation but he sends forth his spirit so we're told in our Westminster confession to those to those that he knew before the foundations of the world he sends forth his spirit sometimes in the womb that's the comfort that we have As parents, even our children that die in infancy, God has showed us, has demonstrated that he can send forth his spirit and cause those children even to be born again before they've been born. This is what we celebrate this morning at a profession of faith. God's call of sending forth his spirit, not in part but the whole. Zechariah, your son from the womb is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is no wonder that a few verses later we're going to read that when Mary comes and visits, what happens to the child inside of Elizabeth, but that it jumps for joy at the presence of its Savior. Of course. Of course he does. Zechariah, here's the big reveal. Your son name is going to be John, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And he's going to have work to do. He has a task. One, he will turn many to the Lord. See, being filled with the Spirit 
it's not really John who's doing the turning, is it? It is the spirit that is within John that is going to be preached, that is going to be proclaimed. It is that same spirit that fills John, who John is going to go out to those multitudes and declare, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And many, many will turn. Many will repent. Many will do that 180. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord is upon them. Zechariah, that's the work your son is going to do. So the first thing we read in Matthew chapter 3 is there's John out in the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Secondly, Zechariah is told that this son not only will turn many to the Lord, but that he will go before him. He will be the one who will prepare the way of the Lord, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40. He will be the voice crying out into the wilderness. Here's the big reveal. Zechariah, your son is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah was at the altar offering the incense and praying. What do you think he was praying for that day? I can tell you what he was praying for. You say, well, they were praying for a son, was he? Really? You think that this 80-year-old guy is still praying to God, Lord, give my wife a son. That's not his prayer. His prayer was the prayer of every faithful Jewish believer. Lord, send forth your Messiah. Send forth our Deliverer. Send forth the one who will ransom Israel, as we've just sung in that hymn. Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. How, Lord? I'm going to give you a child. And you know what your child is going to do? He is going to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. He's going to be the fulfillment of prophecy. Your Redeemer, your Deliverer, your Messiah is coming. The Lord has remembered his covenant promise. But there is a third part of his work. And that's to make ready the people so that when the Messiah comes, the ground has been plowed. The seed can be planted. It is going to be John's task, Zechariah's son's task, to plow the ground. How will that be evident? There's going to be a turning of the earth. That's what you do when you plow the ground, right? It turns the earth over. How will that be seen in John's work? The hearts of fathers will be turned towards their children. Hearts of fathers will, will no longer be directed mainly at their work. The hearts of fathers will no longer mainly be focused on themselves. 
The hearts of fathers will no longer be focused mainly on the luxuries of this world. The hearts of fathers will be invested into the lives of their children. There will be a tenderness, a love, a compassion, a desire. How blessed it is to see on a regular, somebody, Sandy actually pointed this out, so credit where credit is due this morning. What a pleasure it is to see from time to time a father. No, on a more regular basis than time to time. A father stand up with his child and walk to the back. Fathers, who even though mom may be home with kids, still comes and brings their children to church. Fathers, who seek to fulfill that baptism promise not hand it off to mom and say, now you do the, the spiritual raising here, but fathers who take that seriously. Take time with their children to read God's word, to have devotions, to have family prayer. How do we know? How do we know when true conversion has hit and the hearts of fathers are to their children? And that makes ready the way of the Lord. Zechariah, that's what your son is going to do. What an amazing calling, what an amazing task God places before us as fathers, as believers. What an amazing passage this is that Luke begins with. Theophilus, you're learning about the Christian faith. You've got questions. Let me start here. There's this older couple. He's a priest. She's barren. And God comes, remembering his covenant to send forth a redeemer. And John, God is gracious is going to be the one who gets to prepare the way. Today, brother and sister in Christ, it is our privilege by that same covenant God to be called, to be called by him, filled with the Spirit. To what? Go into this world. To what? To plow. To prepare the way for him to come again. This is our calling. This is the heart of Christmas. God's grace displayed to us so that we might speak of God's grace to a world, to those that God will, in His 
plan and purposes called to himself. And God's people say, Amen. Father, we do thank you. We do thank you. Lord, as we read this account, Zechariah doubts and there's a judgment that falls upon him because of that. But that too is taken away. That too is removed. There is the response of the people who are left wondering and questioning what's this all about, what's happening, what's taking place. There is the response of Elizabeth who understands that by her pregnancy her disgrace has been taken away. Father, how much greater, how much greater is the glorious truth that by the coming of Jesus, our disgrace, our shame, our guilt has been taken away through our Redeemer, through our Deliverer. In his name we pray and God's people again say,